You're listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast, conversations between girlfriends who have the knowledge and information to educate and empower you before, during, and after a divorce. We are here to remind you that you're grown and you got this. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Today, I'm going to dive back into our question and answer segment because I've received several additional questions on parenting matters. And so I want to make sure that we answer those questions that you have because our goal here at Grown Girl Divorce is certainly to educate and empower our girlfriends who are going through a divorce. And we know many of you are mamas. And so it's really, really, really important that you get your questions answered. So let's jump right in. Our first question, what is the biggest mistake that I can make in mediation? I love how this is phrased because it's really kind of addressing the, I don't want to make this mistake. So let me ask, what's the biggest mistake that I can make? So here's your answer. Biggest mistake that people make in mediation is that they don't prepare for mediation. They prepare as if they're going to litigate. Mediation is not the same as going into court. So you need to prepare for it differently. The way to do that is to think about how do I problem solve the issues? If it deals with parenting schedule, yes, you may have your ideal schedule. So you want to write that down be very clear about this is what I would like. Here's why I think that it works not just for me, but for the other parent. Then do another schedule. Here's another option that could potentially work. Here's why I like it, but maybe not as much as my first one, but these are all of the ways that it could also be workable. The reason it's important to frame it in the what's workable and maybe not as workable is because the mediator's job is to help you kind of sort out and answer the questions that we look for in thinking about what makes the most sense, not just for the individual, but for the collective. And so if you are preparing for mediation, you wanna prepare for the collective. And a great way to do that is really by asking yourself, okay, what's workable, what's not workable? And that could be for anything from parenting matters all the way down to finances as it relates to the children. Why does this make the most sense? Why doesn't this work as well? And you work through that as a full analysis throughout your preparation. That's gonna be different than when you, of course, prepare as if you were going to court. If you're going to court, you only think of it from the perspective of one person and not from the perspective of both. So in preparing for mediation, it's always important to consider I am in the problem solving process and in the problem solving process, I need to work through a variety of options and then within those options, explain why I think this could work, not just for me, but for everybody. So biggest mistake that people make 
in preparing for mediation is that they prepare as if they're going to litigate and not if they're going to problem solve, which is mediation. Our next question, when should I return to court to address issues with my co-parent? This is a really difficult one because it depends on the issues that you're having with your co-parent. Certainly, if there are emergency issues, then that requires an emergency response. So if you're having issues related to something like, you know, the physical safety of the child, your physical safety during exchanges, if you don't know where your co-parent has relocated, but they're insistent upon, um, you know, having the child for overnights. If you have concerns about, um, you know, illegal activity that might be happening in your child's presence, those type of things require emergency responses. That's different than what I will say um, are the non-emergency issues. Those things include pickup drop-off, so logistic issues, parenting schedule issues, or even payment of expenses. First, let's think about when your judgment or the last order was entered. If the judgment was just entered yesterday and now here we are the next day and the two of you are already having issues, it's not necessarily the right time to go back to court because you haven't given the opportunity for things to kind of flesh out. You also don't have enough, what we're going to say is evidence. You don't have enough evidence that it's actually not going to work. The fact that it didn't work today doesn't assume that it's not going to ever work. So you do have to give it some time. Depending on where you live and what your statute says, statute being the law about a return to court for modification, you might have certain time period before you can go back into court. That usually deals with things like a change in decision-making or kind of legal custody. So in many states, you cannot come back into court seeking to modify or change the determination of a sole decision-maker or sole legal custody, except for a showing of a change in circumstances and not your average change in circumstances. It has to be something that could not otherwise been known or seen at the time that the judgment was entered. So you wanna make sure that if your law prevents you or says, nope, there's a time period and a threshold by which we uh, require you to meet before you can modify certain decisions or certain judgments, then make sure you know what those are. That's first. Second, things like a parenting schedule, Yes, if you've given it some time and it's constantly an issue or you're constantly having to modify or, you know, your um, co-parent just refuses to pay anything or refuses to give you the itinerary or the travel information, look, receipts as in documentation is really important. So, I'm a big fan of having a journal, whether that's a physical or a digital one. There are certainly also co-parenting apps that also 
serve really well in terms of kind of tracking certain things. And that includes kind of the pick up and drop off or making a note or having an email exchange just confirming you didn't pick up again today. You were scheduled to have, you know, the kids um, Tuesday and here we are and you were a no show and we didn't otherwise agree. Or an email that says, I got your text five minutes ago saying you're not coming today. We need to get on the same page about notification. You want to have a record in real time of the issues that you're having. The reason you want to have that information and document it in real time is because sometimes we forget those things. And then at the time we are in front of a judge or in front of a mediator, it's really hard to be able to quantify the totality of the issues when we can only point to the one that happened in this week. And it's likely it's that one, it's that, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. But we need all of the straw, right? So it's really important that as things are at issue, you document them and you have them in a file or somewhere where you can go back to. I also really like the idea of having a written communication so that you are, and that doesn't mean I I want you to go down this rabbit hole of constantly having to engage with your co-parent in a negative way, but certainly being able to make sure that you're documenting the I know you were scheduled to pick up the kids today. I'm just reconfirming that you're not coming today. Or, you know, I received a message from the school that the kids, you know, are not being picked up by you. And, you know, that now means that I have to go and get them. Thank you for letting me know that you've decided not to pay for the soccer lessons, though we agreed right? So you don't need to get into a, you know, why aren't you paying for this? Or thank you for letting me know. Okay. Or, you know, it was not my understanding that we weren't going to follow the current parenting schedule, which has you picking up on Tuesdays. We are obviously doing something else, or we obviously may need to look at something else. You want to send the email, you want to keep the response, and then you track those. So that way, when you then send the communication to your co-parent in saying, you know, in the last three months, we've had a series of changes and this just isn't sustainable. We need to go to mediation or, you know, hey, I've now meeting with a lawyer or you're going to the lawyer's office and you say, you know, listen, over the last three months or the last six months or however long it is, Here is kind of what the track record has been. That's really, really helpful information. And it also mitigates that kind of back and forth of, no, that's not true. I actually did pick up last Tuesday or no, you know, you're not remembering correctly. Have things done in real time. Having and keeping a record of things is really important when you're ready to address issues with your co-parent. And then in doing so, you can then decide, okay, am I going to give this 
60 days, 90 days, or, you know, has it now been a year? Now I'm ready to proceed with taking the next step. Just on the, you know, last point on should I return to court? You know, I always think that you should first try to work it out between the two of you if it can be done in a productive way. If you don't think that the two of you can communicate in a productive way, then certainly reaching out and scheduling and working with a mediator may be the next step. You want to check your judgment documents to see what in fact it says about dispute resolution or modification, because we always want to make sure we're in compliance. If the two of you do not have a court order, whether that's an agreed order um, or some sort of other court order, including a judgment, then taking the step to formalize how we're going to do things on a going forward is really important. And so communicating with your co-parent and saying, you know, I think now is the time that we need to actually formalize things because the way it's been going just isn't working anymore. Our next question, do we have to share the holidays? Wow, you know, holidays always bring up a lot of emotions, um, especially when we're, you know, dealing with kids. And it's interesting because one would think that as the kids get, um, you know, older, maybe it doesn't, uh, you know, have that same sense of, uh, or be as emotionally driven, but we know that that's not the case, right? It, you know, especially when we hit those teenage years where parents are thinking, gosh, I've got a couple more years before they're actually in the house with me or celebrating with me before they, you know, maybe go off on their own. Um, so the holidays oftentimes bring up a lot of emotions as it relates to how we allocate them and whether or not we have to share them. So let's think about a couple of things. One, if you have a parenting plan that has a holiday calendar or holiday template, follow that plan. But if you have concerns about that plan or, you know, what the agreements were, don't wait until, you know, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving to then reach out to the other co-parent and say, oh, hey, we need to change, you know, Thanksgiving this year because last year didn't work so well. Don't do that. You know the dates of the holidays, they come around the same time of year. If you're concerned about how Thanksgiving went last year, nothing wrong with, you know, come March, April, over the summer, reaching out and saying, you know, I'd love for us to talk about, uh, uh, you know, looking at our holiday schedule because I'd like for us to look at, you know, how things went last year and really change it for this year. The same is true for summer vacation planning. If you know that last summer was a dumpster fire in terms of planning and how things went, now is the time to sit down and really think about, okay, how can we make this better for everybody? Because last summer it was just super chaotic. Don't wait until right before the holiday or special occasion to engage in that conversation. But in terms of this idea of sharing, you know, I often have, um, you know, co-parents who will sit in mediation and will say, Oh, we'll just share. We'll just, you know, spend the day together and, and it'll be fine. And here's the thing. Right. I think that very special and unique families have the ability to actually share the day 
where it's not uncomfortable for everybody. Because look, there's a big myth that your kids want you to share that space together. They do, but they want you to do it where everybody isn't awkward and where it's not weird. And so don't force something that just doesn't work. So the idea of sharing the day can look like a couple of different things. Yes, it can certainly look like, you know, you're coming over to my house um, or we're meeting up at a restaurant and we're collectively doing something together. And so, um, you know, we are going to share the day. Sharing the day could also mean that I have the morning, then we're doing you know, an afternoon exchange, and you have the latter part of the day. You can certainly do that. But the question centers around, do we have to? No, unless that's what your allocation judgment says. If that's what it says right now, then yes, you always have to follow the terms that you agreed upon or that were ordered. However, That doesn't mean that at some point you can't seek to modify it. But if you are saying to yourself, you know, we're preparing for this upcoming holiday season and I don't want to actually sit around and, you know, sing, you know, Christmas carols or, you know, slice a turkey with my soon to be ex um, or my children's, you know, other parent, then go ahead and engage in the conversation and just saying, you know, I think that for all of us, it might be a good idea if we figure out how to make this work. And when I say all of us, I want you to be intentional about how you frame it. You want to speak from your own perspective. And that could very well be, you know, for me, it's really important to me that we find a way to make the holidays work. And I don't feel that for me, us sharing it is the productive way, but I'm interested in hearing what you think works for you. And then collectively, maybe we can come to something that works for us. It's really important to try as much as you can in framing things from your own perspective, because you don't want to make an assumption for anybody else, one. And two, be very careful in saying it's best for the children and this is what, because you're projecting. Whether you mean to or not, you are. So unless as a family, everybody is sitting together and actually allowing everybody to give voice to what they individually would like, don't project. I do not recommend sitting around with children and asking them what they want unless you are working with a therapist who can facilitate that conversation in a safe space to allow them to really give voice to their opinions because there can be some really, really hurt feelings based on what they've said. And the last thing you want to do is drive a wedge between you and your child or the child and the other parent um, to kind of force something. So whenever we think about engaging children in adult conversations, the only time we should engage is really at the direction and with the assistance of a professional. And so that being then a therapist 
who can help them give voice and in a way that is um, best for them. Our next question is, my co-parent spouse is making decisions about my child. What can I do? Oh boy. So, you know, bonus parents, step parents, um, that's always a very interesting dynamic. And sometimes it's interesting because maybe you and your co-parent were never married. Now the co-parent is now, you know, married, or maybe this is your former spouse and they have remarried or you have remarried. And so that brings in its own, you know, new dynamic. And so what's really important is finding a way for you and the co-parent to communicate about boundaries, parameters, and expectations. This may be the opportune time to engage a co-parenting therapist or go to mediation to talk about, hey, here are some of the things that I have some real concerns or reservations as it relates to your spouse. Because we always want to be respectful in knowing that, you know, your children are going to be around this new individual and they are a part of their family. And so it's really important to make sure that any conversations that are surrounding the topic of the new parent is done in a way that doesn't otherwise pour gasoline on an already, you know, hot fire because that can become explosive really, really quickly. And that's not the intention. But if you have a situation where you have a bonus parent or step parent, however, you know, that, that person self identifies or however the children have, you know, now identified that, that individual, you want to make sure that you are clear with kind of the legal boundaries by which the parents operate. The reason I say the legal boundaries is you always want to go back to your judgment and your parenting plan. What does it say about our ability to make decisions for our children? So if we have joint decision making, right? So that means that the two of us are making decisions on behalf of our child. And if your concern is, hmm, now the co-parent is making decisions with their spouse on behalf of our child, then first step is always, you know, send an email before you send it, read it back, take out any nasty language, you know, anything that's accusatory, make it as vanilla, but as direct as possible. And then say, you know, I'd like for us to sit down and have a conversation or figure out a way that we can address some of the concerns that I have about, you know, your spouse. The appropriate, and, and I paused for a minute there because I was going to say polite, but I will say appropriate thing to do is to, you know, be an adult about how you are identifying this person, right? So, you know, leave all of the nasty name calling, leave all of the that woman or that man or no, 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 let's be adults, right? So, you know, I'd like to talk to you about the concerns I have about, you know, name whatever the person's name is. They are a person. Um, some of the decisions that he or she is making. Okay. 
Be respectful. You always, always, always want any communication that you send to be such that it can be read out loud by a judge or by a lawyer at any point in time. That says a lot about you as an individual and it will go a really far way if you have to find yourself before a judge, okay? So leave the immaturity for the draft you know, emails. When you send that, send something that you will feel comfortable if the judge has to read the communication, okay? If your co-parent responds in a nasty way, great, save that bad boy for later. But you always wanna err on the side of being the bigger person. So with that, you've now looked at your allocation judgment and parenting plan, and it says, you know, parents are the ones to be making the decisions. Identify, you know, it's my understanding that your spouse decided that the kids were not going to follow the uniform policy, or it's my understanding that the two of you decided that they are going to go to this new school. As a reminder, our judgment requires the two of us as the children's parents to make these decisions. If you somehow want to, you know, uh, discuss how involved or not involved that your spouse will be in the decision-making you know, process, then that is something that you and I need to discuss because these are our children or this is our child. And, and so, you know, you always want to take it back to the judgment and parenting plan. If you don't have a judgment or parenting plan, now's the time to get one. Go and get it, get it formalized. Be very clear. You know, we need to obviously go to mediation because our family dynamic has changed. You are now married or remarried. And, you know, I have some concerns about boundaries and parameters, how decisions are being made um, now that we've introduced a new individual into this family dynamic. It's really important to get out ahead of that if you are, in fact, having concerns. As I referenced a little bit earlier, having a file, having written, you know, documentation in real time of any issues or concerns that you have, especially if it's directly with the other, you know, parent or co-parent. I had a case several years ago where um, the new parent um, or the, the new bonus parent was uh, best friends with the child's school principal. And so, um, you know, the, the bonus parent decided that, um, you know, she would tell the principal, oh, you can just let me know, you know, how he's doing in school, or you could just, uh, you know, um, send the information directly to me. And so, you know, we had to set some boundaries and parameters and really kind of some reminders that, no, what we're not doing is circumventing you know, parents, we're not going to do that. I recognize that, you know, you want to be involved and you want to be a part of the child's life, but we have to be mindful of boundaries and parameters and what's going to work for everybody. So again, making sure that you, you know, with specificity, identify these are the challenges or these are the decisions that will also help you check yourself. Because look, 
It may be that you are feeling some kind of way. I know people always say, no, I'm over. You know, this is why I got divorced from them. I don't care. Yeah, but deep down you might be caring. So write down exactly what your issue really is and then ask yourself, huh, is this really a legal issue or is this an emotional issue? Okay, if it's a legal issue, then let me go and speak with a lawyer to see how much of a legal issue it really is, or let me kind of reach out to a mediator and run past them. You know, what are some problem solving options, you know, that maybe help us to resolve this issue? If it's more on the emotional side, then maybe it's more a matter of saying, you know what, let me run this by my therapist and see if my therapist can help me work through some of the things that this new relationship has, you know, kind of bubbled up inside of me. There's nothing wrong with figuring out what's the right support I need to bring my best self to, you know, this new kind of dynamic and relationship. You and your children will be better for it. And then our last question um, today is a really good one because I think a lot of people don't really understand um, the difference between um, a guardian ad litem or a child representative. So the question is, what is a guardian ad litem or child representative and why are they being appointed in my case? Okay, so just generally, you know, a guardian ad litem, uh, a lot of times referred to as a GAL um, or a child representative, you know, they are um, an attorney who is appointed by the court to represent the best interests of the child in the proceedings, and particularly, of course, in custody cases. And their job is, at the end of the day, to really kind of act as the judge's eyes and ears on the ground and to then kind of give um, the judge their recommendation or assessment of, you know, here's the circumstances, here's all the stuff that I've learned about what's happening here. You know, I'm advocating judge on behalf of the child, not the parents. And so, you know, here's what I think would make the most sense as it relates to a parenting schedule or as it relates to the holidays or as it relates to school, okay? So they are the representative of the child, right? So they work for their their client is the child, not the parents. And I'm going to talk about that in, in that distinction here in a moment. And they are appointed um, by the court. Before we break down, though, you know, who their client is and why that's really important, I do, though, want to be very clear that there are differences between having a GAL appointed and having a child representative appointed, okay? So generally speaking, you know, a GAL is appointed when there are, like, allegations of, you know, abuse or neglect or in cases where there's significant conflict between parents, okay? And that person, so the GAL, then does their own kind of independent investigation, and that investigation oftentimes looks like, you know, interviewing your child or your children, interviewing each of you, so the parents, 
potentially other family members. So any kind of, you know, bonus parents or step parents, anybody else who, you know, um, may engage with the children a lot. They don't often give a lot of weight to family members because, you know, inherently family members, depending on the side of the family, can be biased. So when they're looking to investigate, they then look at other individuals. So that might be, you know, the school, that may be the therapist, the pediatrician. So they, they use what they need as a part of their investigation. And then they then provide the court with their recommendations, focusing on what they think. So this individual thinks is in the child's best interest, okay? Now, that's different than, say, a child representative, okay? A child representative is appointed where, um, you know, the court is also looking at the child's interests that are best represented, but by a separate legal advocate, okay? So they're acting essentially almost like the child's attorney, and advocates for their wishes and their preferences, but they're also then considering what is in their best interest. The child rep can conduct an investigation, but that's not their primary role. So their primary role is to present the child's perspective and to make legal arguments on their behalf, okay? So a GAL is not making a legal argument. They are looking for information to really kind of support a the best interest. They are charged with talking to various family members. They are not filing documents. They are, you know, yes, their client, they are working on behalf of the child, but they're not putting together legal arguments. A child representative is though. And so it's really important that you understand the boundaries and limitations and role when you find yourself having the court appoint a GAL or a child representative. Because if your expectation is that they have the ability to file motions or craft a, a legal argument, that may not be the case depending on what role that they have been charged with um, under the court's direction. So be very clear. I do want to make it very clear. The last thing you want is to be in a situation where the court is appointing a GAL or a child representative. That means that clearly mediation has failed, settlement discussions between, you know, lawyers have fallen off, um, and that the court has decided, nope, I need somebody on the ground who can, you know, move through and parse out what I need to know. And so you have really turned over all control over outcomes and things when it lays within the hands of this one individual. I will tell you, for black families, this is not where you want to be because there's a very good chance that you are not going to have somebody who is assigned or appointed to your case who is a person of color you know, certainly may not be black, but, you know, by extension, a person who understands certain nuances, who can, you know, understand that culturally, you know, 
Maybe how you engage, how you talk to, how you um, punish. And I don't even just mean corporal punishment because I'm not saying that all black families, um, you know, believe in corporal punishment. So nobody email me saying that I, you know, support that. What I am saying though is that, you know, how black moms, you know, engage with their child may be very different than this GAL, uh, you know, feelings about, um, you know, the level of engagement. So it's really, really important, especially in black families, um, that you not find yourself having to have somebody who is representing your child who honestly hasn't engaged with a black person on any kind of level, both professionally or personally, uh, ever, right? This is not the person that you want. And the sad part about it is you don't have a say in who gets appointed. I cannot underline and stress that enough. You do not get a say in who gets appointed when we're talking about a GAL or a child representative. Your lawyer may make name, you know, names available or recommend names to a court, but the court at the end of the day will decide who they believe to be the best person for them. So this is not the place that you want to land. I mentioned earlier that I was going to circle back to the idea of who the GAL or child representative, you know, who their client really is. It's not you. Okay. And so they have no responsibility to respond to you um, other than if you're scheduling interviews or answering questions or, you know, getting information, they are likely going to, you know, have an arm's length interaction with you because they don't represent you. They represent your child. And I know you may be thinking, well, my child is a minor. Well, now your child has a representative who is not a minor and who the court is going to be asking for recommendations from. And so talk to your lawyer and be very clear about what information the child rep or the GAL, you know, will be sharing um, and what and how communications between you and the GAL or the child rep are treated. There is no attorney-client privilege relationship there, which means that if we were in a situation where the a child rep or the GAL is asked about communications between you or the co-parent with them directly, they can't and you can't claim privilege. They don't have the same relationship with you. That privilege is only extended to their client, the person they represent, who they're speaking on behalf of, and that is your child. So make no mistake when you think that just because you're paying the bill, because you will be paying the bill, obviously your child won't be, um, that that gives you some sort of additional rights or privilege to the information. It doesn't. Having a GAL or a child representative appointed in your case is not where you want to land at all. So I charge you to do your very best to try to settle matters, try to negotiate, try to get into mediation, 
try to get your lawyer to engage with the other lawyer, to really, really, really do what you can to not have another person in your case dealing with family matters because you really have now lost all control over the outcome and there's a very good chance that you're not going to like what that outcome looks like. Not to even mention the cost that is now associated with now having another lawyer. They are billing you on a billable hour. They are, um, you know, gonna get paid before anybody else gets paid. And so, you know, make no mistake, if you're going down that path because the two of you can't decide over how you're gonna, you know, split Christmas or what you're gonna do about vacation planning, make no mistake that it's gonna be a very expensive endeavor um, when you now have this third person in place. So hopefully that information um has been helpful today. We've had, you know, a series of really good questions that I think are important to get answered so that you have the information as you proceed. Or if you're considering a divorce, you know, that you can go in, you know, eyes wide open uh, in, in order to avoid some of these pitfalls. So, Thank you, as always, for listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. You know that I believe that sharing is caring. Please pass this along to your girlfriends, your sorors, anybody who you believe, um, you know, may need the information because we never know who needs the support. And certainly check out our resources on the GrownGirlDivorce.com website, Send us more questions. Follow us on social media at Grown Girl Divorce. This is a space for um, you. And so please utilize it in all the ways um, that you need. Thank you for listening to the Grown Girl Divorce podcast. Remember, though you may be going through a difficult time, you're grown and you got this. Please be sure to tell your girlfriends about us. Follow us on Instagram at Grown Girl Divorce and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any new conversations. The conversations on this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to substitute working directly with a lawyer. These episodes are not to be used as a basis to support or defend any legal action and transcripts or recordings of the podcast may not be used for any purpose without the direct written permission of the podcast owner.